Well, the war in Ukraine reached a tragic milestone today. The UN reports that the number of people fleeing the country has surpassed 4 million. That's in just a little over a month, 4 million people. 2.4 million of them have crossed into Poland alone. Inside the country, it's estimated 6.5 million more have been dis- displaced and double that are believed to be trapped in areas under attack. This is how UN Emergency Coordinator Alex Mund in Poland describes the massive flow of people across Ukraine's borders. Today we crossed the four million mark. Um, I think it's a tragic milestone. Um, It means that in less than a month, or in just about a month, four million people have been uprooted from their homes, from their families, their communities, um, in what what is the fastest exodus of of refugees moving in recent history. It's hard to describe um, in in an interview what four million people totally traumatized by war looks like or feels like and what it means for their future when six weeks ago they were living a completely normal life and now they're completely uprooted. That is UN Emergency Coordinator Alex Munn in Poland today. It's proving to be a massive and fast-moving humanitarian crisis and providing aid, particularly in the war zone itself, continues to be a very difficult challenge. Mercy Corps is one organization with people on the ground in Ukraine. They've been there for a long time and surrounding countries. Joining me now is Craig Redman. He's the Senior Vice President of Programs at Mercy Corps, and he's just returned from the region. Craig, thank you so much for your time tonight. You're welcome, Ben. Good to be with you. You've just come back, so you've seen firsthand what kind of crisis this is. I know you've worked in others, uh, other significant humanitarian crises around the world. Uh, what have you seen there, and how would you describe it? Yeah, it's it, it, it's an absolutely tragic situation right now that's unfolding. Unfortunately, as we just saw in the report that you had before, the numbers are staggering. Uh, and one of the things I'll tell you that's so striking about this is when I crossed over the border from Poland into Ukraine, one of the things I noticed right away was you see grandmothers with mothers with children and no men. This is a sign of families being pulled apart and men staying behind to either fight as well as women as well. But you see these families just fractured by this horrible situation. That must create a different kind of humanitarian crisis when you have so many elderly women, kids uh, making that journey. Uh, because again, they are in a situation where they they are vulnerable, obviously, as refuge as as displaced peoples, if you wish. Exactly. Yeah, and the tragedy, Ben, is is also that uh, there are a lot of people, uh, disabled people or elderly people, who actually can't go anywhere, and they're stuck there. You know, we've seen the situation in Mariupol down in the down in the southwest corner uh, of a besieged city. Uh, completely surrounded and so many people can't get out of there. And then further to the east from there in Luhansk and Donetsk, uh, you see a lot of, excuse me, elderly people there unable to leave and unable to go without the resources or the means to travel. One of the things, I mean, we've spoken to quite a few people over the last month who've been involved in the humanitarian effort there. And of course, one of the things that became very clear very quickly is that those who had the means and the opportunity to leave early and had places to go all left. Uh, And then those who couldn't move or those who didn't have money, didn't have uh, the means to go anywhere else were the ones who were then fleeing afterwards, which I imagine makes a much more challenging environment for you to deliver this aid in. I know you've been delivering stuff like money, which I gather is fundamental, uh, and other goods. How are how is your work on the ground in Ukraine taking place and what are you doing? Yeah, thank, thank you for that. Well, it, it kind of falls into four main buckets. Number one, those besieged places, 
uh, where people can't go and they're being bombarded and shelled right now, of course, that's that requires immediate life-saving kinds of assistance from food, water, you know, blankets, those kind of immediate things where we can get them in there. And in fact, some of those humanitarian humanitarian corridors have even collapsed. So very, very difficult. So that's that's one. And then the others where there's fighting happening, but people can flee, they are fleeing. And so they become IDPs, internally displaced people heading for borders or heading for safer places within Ukraine. And then the third one is what we were just talking about, people who cross the border and go into another country, then they formally become refugees. And that creates its own set of dynamics. And then the one that I didn't talk about very often are those host communities, those towns, those cities like Lviv, like Ivano-Frankivsk, those places in the West that are packed, packed with people stretching their resources and so forth. So Mercy Corps' response to this comes in a few different ways. Number one, through local Ukrainian partners doing all kinds of humanitarian assistance into those besieged places where they need food and assistance. And then, as you mentioned, second, the really important thing is getting cash into the hands of people who are displaced. Cash means that they can make decisions for themselves. They can spend the money in the way that they need to spend it. You know, sometimes you need a blanket, sometimes you don't. What you need is the option to control your own future. So that's what cash does for them, as well as uh, stimulating the local economy. We've been hearing lots of reports from people in Kyiv or speaking to people in Kyiv, uh, people in Kharkiv and so on, that say that, of course, they know that there's a lot of aid coming, but they're not seeing a lot of it on the ground because it's been difficult to coordinate it in. Are you finding it particularly challenging? And if so, why would that, why in this case, is it just the speed and scope and the fact that it's still such an active war zone and such a big country? That's part of it, Then it, it, It's an active war zone. Those transportation, as I was saying, those humanitarian corridors that we discussed earlier, oftentimes collapse, meaning we can't get the things in there as quickly as we want to get them in there. And then the dynamics on the ground are changing very, very quickly. So, you know, when, when we establish a corridor, we start to get things in there, suddenly the needs pivot and it's really somewhere else. And we see how quickly this conflict is evolving. So that's also one of the major challenges. What are some of the things that you, I mean, what were some of the main kinds of aid that you were delivering? I mean, I was kind of looking for an example of, of, a, of a situation that my listeners could identify with when you're trying to solve a problem and it's changing that quickly on you and you're trying to deliver aid to people who desperately need it uh, and then trying to figure out the logistics in a place that I gather you've worked in for quite a while. So you do have local partners, right? Uh, Absolutely. But, for an example, for instance, of something that you saw while you were there that really hit home in terms of how difficult a challenge this has become. Well, talking to local officials, and you know, in some places, of course, that you know, there's very capable government there, as we've seen. So where we can, we're coordinating with them, and at, at every step of the way. Um, and in some places, they're saying, like Mariupol, and this is really heartbreaking. Uh, you know, they're saying we need, we need medicine, we need medical equipment, life-saving equipment. There was even a call for tourniquets at one point. You can imagine how horrendous that is, as well as food and water, running out of food and water. So those are a couple of concrete examples of things that in those places they just they just desperately need. In other places where people were able to flee, we really feel it's important to get cash into their hands so they can make their own decisions. And then you see people, um, you know, when they have a chance to get the cash and make the kinds of decisions that they want to make, stay where they want to stay. Um, and and eat where and how they want to eat. That's that's very important. You can imagine if you're a displaced person, what you would do for your family. You would do anything, and you would want to be able to 
to, to make those decisions for yourself. Craig, how do you, I mean, I, I've been to Mariupol. I remember when, when during mm -hmm. the first invasion in 2014, uh, and I remember how quickly the ca the bank machines ran out of cash. That was one of the first things as an outsider, you, you think, wow, there's no more money left in this city to be had. The banks are closed. The bank machines are empty. How do you get cash into the, into the hands of those who need it? Yeah, that's a great question. The banking sector, believe it or not, is still functioning uh, in Ukraine. In some places, of course, you're right. Here, when I say cash, I don't I don't necessarily mean bills. Uh, right. I mean digital wallets, things like that. You can top up cards. Uh, you can do those kinds of things. And so, uh, it, as you know, uh, Ukraine is a very sophisticated banking uh, country. And therefore, those kinds of digital means of you know, transferring money around is very possible. So that's definitely how we'll be doing it. When you look forward a little bit now, I mean, people continue to leave. Uh, the displacement within the country continues. Where do you see the challenges in the next few weeks, in the next month or so, if this fighting continues at the pace it's been it's been happening at so far? Well, there are many. Um, one of them, you know, we're thinking about right away. Whenever we do an emergency response, we also think about the recovery. So, what can we do now? That's that sort of that that it kind of starts to put in some of the infrastructure that will be necessary for recover recovery later. We know how how important agriculture is and how important grain production is. In Ukraine, you know, how can we be working with agronomists uh, uh, and farmers and so forth so we can be thinking about uh, that recovery piece so that they have the inputs, the seeds and tools and so forth that they need to get, to get back to farming. So that's one thing that we're thinking about that's going to be really hard. If we miss this season, um, if we're not, if farmers are not able to get back up to their fields and either plant or harvest, we know the impact this will have globally. Obviously, Ukraine, a, a mass product, uh, producer of, of exporter of, of grain globally. So, so that's one thing. And the other thing I think about Ben, which is similar to other, uh, you know, displacement uh, scenarios like Ukraine, um, Poland, Romania. These countries have been wonderful about receiving refugees. It's also one of those things that it doesn't take very long to where they start to feel general population starts to feel the drag on their own economy. And I worry about that impact as well. I mean, the open doors that the, the Polish people have shown to Ukrainian refugees is unbelievable. And we saw the same thing happen in Turkey with Syrian refugees. And it, and it wasn't very long, a few months into it, where you could start to see the wear and tear on the local economy and, and on local communities. Lebanon, another example, uh, and on and on and on. Which is a great segue, Craig, because when we come back after the break, I did want to ask you about the global impacts. I did want to ask you, uh, the UN Secretary General mentioned it today, and I did want to talk to you about that. And we'll talk about the the, the broader impact of what's happening in Ukraine uh, on the rest of the world and other populations. There are many other people around the world still fleeing conflict. We'll get to that after this. Well, the war in Ukraine reached a tragic milestone today. The UN reports the number of people fleeing the country surpassed 4 million people. There are many more displaced internally, about 6.5 million, and double that are believed to be trapped in areas under attack. I'm speaking with Craig Redmond, who's the vice, senior vice president of programs at Mercy Corps, and just back from that area. Um, Today, the UN Secretary General put this into broader perspective, saying the world is facing the highest number of violent conflicts since the end of the Second World War. Uh, Antonio Guterres reported that last year, 84 million people were forced to leave their homes because of conflict, violence, and human rights violations. That was before this uh, this conflict in Ukraine. Here's what he had to say. 
from Yemen to Syria, Myanmar and Sudan, from Haiti to the Sahel, and on and on. And now the war in Ukraine, a catastrophe shaking the foundations of the international order, spilling across borders and causing skyrocketing food, fuel and fertilizer prices that spell disaster for developing countries. Antonio Guterres, the uh, UN Secretary General today. Craig, this this is obviously going to have a knock-on effect. You were talking about agriculture before. We know that uh, Ukraine's obviously a major exporter of grain to uh, the Middle East and North Africa. Um, what kind of impact are you seeing from, from the Mercy Corps' perspective about how this is going to reverberate around the world? I think I think the insecurity, the regional insecurity, is already having major implications. You know, we have programs also in Central Asia. Um, you know, if you're in Kyrgyzstan, you're wondering what the implications are. If you're in Georgia, you're wondering what's going to happen next uh, with Russia and what and, and and what they're going to what else they're going to do next uh, regionally. So that general sense of geopolitical instability is a major thing we're feeling. But all those places also, you know, as we're saying, traditionally are, you know, consumers of Ukrainian grain. Uh, and at something like WFP, World Food Program, a, a huge percentage of their grain comes from Ukraine to feed the rest of the world. I think, I think some of the things we can imagine, other, other, parts, other parts of the implications of this are, are, just, are just massive. It, I, I was going to touch on that because, you know, as you I mean, you, I know you spent time in Central Asia as well, but where are yeah. the real pain points right now? Uh, do you think if this war were, were, continues at this pace, where, what might we see come spring and summer? And obviously we know from back in, in the Arab Spring, rising food prices have a way of destabilizing a lot of places. Absolutely. Well, yeah, rising food prices destabilize and also push more and more people uh, below the poverty line. Uh, th that's what we start to see. So then you'll see rising food insecurity begin to happen in many places in the world. Uh, it, you know, that, that's something that we're really worried about as well. So there is the general ge geopolitical instability and then massive, you know, could be massive food insecurity. And as the, the Secretary General said in his quote that you just had, you know, the implications for all of these other humanitarian uh, uh, sort of disasters around the world from Yemen to Africa, I mean, just a few months ago, Ben, we were we were preparing for Afghanistan to be, you know, the humanitarian challenge of our times. Uh, and then suddenly this happens. But Afghanistan didn't go away. So, you know, all of these things still persist and all these things with global economies the way they are. All these things are interconnected. So if you're an organization such as Mercy Corps and you, you're trying to plan out your your plan of attack, so to speak, how do you prioritize when you have the Afghanistans going on? You still have Yemen going on. You still have Syria unfolding. You still have problems in, in Lebanon now. You're, you may have problems in North Africa with food. There are obviously other areas of sub-Saharan Africa that are, that are traditionally where there are issues. And now you have Ukraine. How do you prioritize and, and how do you make sure you don't spread too thin? You know, that's, a, that's a huge challenge for, for all of us. Uh, you know, we fall back on humanitarian principles. Where is the most, you know, life-saving uh, activities? Where are they needed most? Um, and let's focus on those things first. And at the same time, try not to take our eye off the ball in other places where we've made, you know, some gains, where some countries have made some, some gains recently. So trying to focus on those life-saving activities, 
Um, making sure that we have strong networks of local partners uh, where we can hand things over to them. I certainly don't mean to imply that as, you know, international organizations, we're in there doing everything, not at all. You know, strong communities, strong local government, strong uh, partnerships are so essential to be able to to being able to respond to these global emergencies just at this scale, unprecedented, frankly. Going back to Ukraine briefly, uh, one of the things that I had noticed, at least anecdotally speaking to many people, is that there's, there's been this incredible network within the country that has developed of people helping other people out. In other words, this almost gray zone informal aid humanitarian relief effort that has sprung up almost organically. Did you see that while you were there? Absolutely. You know, the thing is, the local organizations in some countries, you know, there isn't that network of community based organizations or even formal uh, non governmental organizations. Ukraine has that. Um, so you have that to fall back on. Uh, and not only that, but you have a well developed uh, church network as well. So we, we've seen, uh, you know, church communities stepping forward, um, sending, sending, uh, you know, lists of needs out to places where that can respond to organizations like ours, those kinds of things are so moving to see. And then frankly, just the way these communities, you know, further West have opened their doors to their, their neighbors from across the country is, is, is a model for how we should behave in my opinion, you know, with each other. I have a few minutes left. I guess what I wanted to ask you about, and you've already alluded to it earlier, is just where do your concerns lie now in the next uh, in the next thirty to sixty days as to where this may all be headed? I'm worried about an escalation um, of, I, and I, we all know, we've all heard the you know the possibility of there being some sort of ceasefire or maybe a cessation of hostilities. You know, I don't know about that, um, but I, I worry about an escalation of violence and what that will mean to people who can't leave. So I, I, I think about that. Also, as we touched on before, Ben, I, I worry about those host communities in neighboring countries, uh, what starts to happen over time with all of those. Uh, and then third, I worry about fatigue on the part of donors. Um, I worry that uh, resources will flow from some of these other countries and these other emergencies we've mentioned to go to Ukraine. It is needed in Ukraine. I'm not saying it isn't. But to see um, resources pulled from one place and put into another is, is not what we need. It, it, you know, this is a, a, a set of global humanitarian crises, and we frankly just have to rise to it. Craig Redman, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me, Ben.